Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Good to see you. We come to our final message in the book of James, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Just the last two verses is our text today, so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it, find the last two verses of James, which I'll read in just a moment and pray, and then we're going to work our way through this, this important text. I heard a preacher say once that I like to listen to, I was listening to him preach on James, and he said that the point is not so much to get through a series on James, but for James to get through us and into us. And so I, I pray that that has happened over the last few months that we've looked at this beautiful letter, power packed with truth, and I pray that the Lord would help us this morning. So let me read verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me pray. Lord, we do, we do pray that prayer, that sentiment that not so much getting through another book of the Bible, but having this book get through us. We pray that that would be the case. As we finish up this study through James, I pray that you would make us more like your son. And for my friends that are in this room or listening online that do not yet know you, whether they realize that or not, or whether they are falsely assured, maybe they think that they are believers, but they're not, I pray that in your kindness you would show them, you would open up their eyes, and that you would give them the gift of faith by your sovereign grace, give them a new heart so that they can believe. I pray that this truth would serve to build up your church and make us more like you, make us a, a more faithful, a more fruitful a more Christ-like church. And I pray for my, my brothers that are preaching the gospel in our city, in other pulpits, and other churches. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray for Randolph Prudent at Benning Hills Baptist Church, that you would bless that dear brother. For Wes Simmons at St. Andrew's Presbyterian. For Ricky Smith at Calvary Baptist. And so many others that are faithfully proclaiming your word, we pray that you would cause your word across our city to not return void. Help that now in this place, I pray, for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So the overarching point of James, if we could sum it up, I think has been to argue for a type of faith, a sincere faith. James is wanting to combat easy believism, nominalism. And what this word nominalism means is people who are Christians in name, nominal, nominal Christians in name only. We spent a couple years, about a year ago, going through the letter of Romans, which was talking about the free gift of the gospel, that we're not saved by anything that we do, but simply by the grace of God in Christ. What God the Father has done to reconcile unrighteous sinners to himself through the righteousness of his son Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, 
rose again in victory over sin and death, and now calls all those that the Father has given him to life in him, to turn from trusting in themselves, to turn from trusting in their own righteousness, which the Bible says is as filthy rags, and to put their hope in what Jesus has done. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the great message of the gospel. But James wants to be careful that we don't mistakenly view the grace of the gospel as something merely in the past, that God forgives us of our sins and all we need to do is have this one-time interaction with God by faith and then we can kind of continue to live however we want. James is saying that if your faith is truly the type of faith that God has given you in true salvation, it's going to produce some work, some obedience in your life to God. I think that's the main point of James. And he gives us several categories where that faith will prove itself, whether it's treating people a certain way. He speaks about the tongue a lot. There's, there's many verses in James, a whole chapter. Basically, chapter 3 is all about our tongue. And then in this final chapter, it's been primarily about helping one another live out this faith for Jesus. It's the necessity of the church. And I think that's the point. So let's look at verses 19 and 20 slowly, and then we're going to reflect on just really the whole book of James, very briefly at the end. He says here in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back. So notice this phrase here, anyone among you. The point here is that he's speaking to Christians. Among you, clearly the context is the local church, this group of people among whom they were professing believers. That's the assumption clearly that James has here. He's speaking to a local church, which I think, although it doesn't state it explicitly, is implicit in its understanding of a kind of formal a kind of recognized understanding of the local church, which I think is a clear uh, advocation of this idea of church membership. Who, how were these people to understand who was among them if they didn't in some sense have a kind of formal understanding of who actually was among them? I think this text, as I just said, argues for a kind of formal understanding of the entity of the local church. So how does the church recognize those among you? Well, I think the right profession of the gospel, we need to, as a church, to, to, as, as a church, make sure that we rightly understand the gospel. We need to ratify that right understanding of the gospel by baptism. And friends, let's just admit that we are not good at this as a culture. We are not good at this. I confess that I'm part of a vocation pastors in America who oftentimes are guided by this instinct that we want to validate our existence by how many people just kind of gather in the room. And when that impulse is the strongest impulse in a church's or a ministry leadership team or a pastor's heart, then they inevitably are going to blur the lines of what it means to be a believer. And so, In much of our culture, an understanding of who is a believer is just those people who merely physically show up on a Sunday. But that that can often be a kind of false assurance. That's not necessarily what it means to be a believer. We think here, and I think this bears itself out in Scripture, is that the church is to be an intentional culture that understands, that knows 
what one another believes about the most important truths, the gospel itself. And so if you were to be a member of Crosspoint Church, you have to do more than just show up. We want you to attend our membership class where we clearly explain what we think it means to be a believer in the gospel. And then we want to sit down with you and we want to make sure that you rightly understand this gospel. Imagine if you went to a doctor and you just went in for a yearly checkup. And imagine if there was a tumor growing inside your chest or your stomach. And you just walked in the door and as far as the doctor could tell, you looked healthy. But the doctor just kind of looked at you and said, oh, well, you, you look great. All right. Well, well, check out at the front desk and give us your copay and you're fine. You're on your way. And they didn't draw blood or at least put a stick in your throat and say, ah, or something, hit you on the knee, something. Examine me, doc. If you had a tumor growing in your chest, you would consider, you would sue that doctor for malpractice, rightly so. But oftentimes churches, when they don't know who, when there's not some sort of mechanism to examine who really is among us that truly believes this, then they often are guilty of a kind of spiritual malpractice. Now, of course, everyone is always welcome to attend our services, and we're glad that you're here if you're not yet a believer. And you don't necessarily have to be a member of the church, obviously, to attend our services. But we want to be very careful as a church to not merely just slap a Christian tag on somebody in our culture where all you have to do is physically locate yourself on a Sunday to be considered a Christian. That's, that's death to the vitality of a church because what happens is many people think that they're okay with God merely because they occasionally locate themselves somewhere on a Sunday morning. Now, they very well may be Christians, but they very well may not be. And so the church, a healthy church, knows who is among them, and we take responsibility for one another in the Christian life. That's the thrust. That's implied in this text. And so just as a, as a kind of application, if you're not yet a member of a local church, I think you should come to our membership class. I think you should hear what we believe about the gospel. I think you should let us hear what you believe about the gospel. And if it's biblical, we will bring you into membership of the church. We will, if you haven't been baptized yet, we'll baptize you, which is the, the right public profession of the gospel in your life. And you'll be a member of this church. If this isn't the right church for you, I think you should go to another gospel preaching church where there's a group of people who are intent on taking the Christian life seriously and knowing who is among them and who they are accountable for. Because what comes next means nothing if there's not a kind of understanding of who we're responsible for as a local church. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So the, so the context here is that somebody that was part of this local church or local churches that James is writing to has now wandered. They're not around anymore. And what are they to do? They're to bring this person back. But notice two things I want us to notice about this phrase, wanders from the truth. First, James does not specify the nature of the wandering. What, what's the cause of the wandering? It's probably intentionally vague, so it has broad application. It could be due to many different reasons. It could be due to some sin issue, some moral issue, some relational conflict. 
Maybe it's just that the, the world is starting to draw this person away. Maybe, maybe it's youth sports, which I don't think they had in the first century, but it's certainly a problem with us where we're just prioritizing other things over the gathering of the people of God. Maybe it's just a kind of disinterest, a person that we thought was on fire for the Lord for six months or maybe a couple years is now just slowly kind of like the parable of the soils or like that, that, that plant that... that took root, it seemed to take root quickly and shot up quickly. We were on fire for the Lord. But then when just the cares of the world came, they kind of wither away and they, they prove themselves to not really be interested in the Lord. In fact, that time when we thought they were fired up for the Lord, it shows that they were really just interested in what the church or sort of their newfound religious fervor could do for them. And now that it hasn't really delivered, they slowly drift away. They're wandering from the truth. The point here is that James is intentionally vague. The second thing I think we should notice is that, that although it doesn't state it in the text, this just is clearly true, that wandering from the truth just does not happen overnight. People don't wake up one morning and say, you know, I'm going to wander from the believing community. It's almost always a slow, gradual, here a little, there a little, drift. So let's keep going. Verse 20. He says, okay, this person's wandering from the truth. And he says there, if someone brings him back, so uh, 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 almost the, the picture we have here is of Luke 15 of Jesus. You know that beautiful parable where Jesus says that the shepherd has 100 sheep and one has wandered. He leaves the 99 to go get the one. That's the picture here of how we should love one another in the local church. And he says in verse 20, let him know meaning the person who goes after, the person in the local church who goes after this wanderer, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, this, this verse brings up some questions that we need to answer in just a moment, but let's look a little bit methodically at it before we handle that question. First, just look at the phrase, let him know. So what James, the person who needs to know is the faithful brother or sister who is being encouraged. Let that person know that if they go after this wanderer and bring him back or her back, they will save this soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in other words, James is saying that the faithful in the church need to be reminded of how important this type of organic ministry in the local church is. Let them know, encourage, exhort, teach, reinforce our responsibility towards one another. Now this is not, I think the reason that little phrase, let him know there, and James is saying, remind the church of the importance of this is because this is not our natural posture or instinct. I know it's not mine. In fact, most of us, most of us, myself included, are relationally passive. We are relationally passive. So James is wanting to stir up, to fan into flame, to reinforce, to encourage a particular type of behavior in the family of the local church. He's, he's basically wanting to say, like my dad was a football coach, and if I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times. Get your head on a swivel. 
Be aware of what's going on around you. Have eyes for people around you. Let this person know how important this is in the life of a local church. That if you bring back somebody that's wandering, as awkward and as hard and as exhausting as that type of living can be in the local church, when you do this, you will save a person from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, this is hard. And I know this to be the case practically in the life of this church. What this text advocates, hopefully, is not new to anyone who is a part of Crosspoint. We talk about this, I think, a lot. We mention it in our membership class. It's sort of woven in our responsibility toward one another. But may I say pastorally that this sentiment this culture of a church has been very, very hard. We've been a church for 15 years. We started this church in April of 2005. This truth, this way of living together has probably been the most difficult cultural thing that we have tried to work into the culture of this church. And I, I owe it to our, our just our cultural relational passivity there's probably many factors but i think if i could go one step further that this truth that verse 20 and 19 is advocating a kind of church-wide every person responsibility for one another this 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 beautiful difficult at times way of living together this corporate responsibility that we have for one another should have for one another has been if I could just say pastorally, probably the most resisted truth here in our church. Now, it's not been actively resisted. I don't think anybody, if they just think about it long enough, or if they hear clear teaching of Scripture, would actively say, no, that's wrong. That's not what that verse is saying. But it's more of a passive resistance of all the truths. Now, we, we preach some controversial truths here. I believe, and we teach this often from the pulpit, in the utter, exhaustive, electing, predestining sovereignty of God and salvation. I believe that God has determined an eternity past, a definitive particular group of people that he has guaranteed to bring from death to life, and he does this by his sovereign pleasure and not because of anything good in that person, and he opens up a dead heart, he makes it alive, he causes that dead heart, not because of anything good in them, to believe and trust in Jesus. I believe that. That's a controversial theological issue. I believe in the complementary nature of men and women. I believe that men and women are equal in their value and essence before the Lord. But I think that the Bible clearly teaches that men and women have different roles and that women should not fulfill the role of pastor or elder in a church and that women, not because they are less than or because they can't understand the Bible as well as men, but because God has given us an order of creation, a complementary order of creation before the fall where men are to be the leaders in the church and in the home, which then clearly, I think, means that women should not teach in an authoritative way in the gathered church. That's a controversial truth. I believe in that, that there are only two genders, male or female. I believe that there is only one biblical faithful expression of human sexuality, which is one man and one woman in marriage, and any other expression of human sexuality 
homosexuality included, when it is continued in, is an affront, is a rebellion against God. And if a person does not repent from that sin, they will be separated from God for eternity. That's a controversial truth in our culture. In fact, that ever increasingly is being deemed as hate speech by our culture, when actually it's the loving presentation of what it means to be right with God. Those are controversial truths. But I actually get very, very little resistance preaching any of those truths in this church. I have found that this idea of us really being responsible for each other, really trying to be responsible for each other, is the most difficult truth for us as a church to actually believe. So what does he say? He says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So this verse brings up some important questions, really an important question. And that question is, can a true believer lose their salvation? And who's doing the saving here? Is it the person? Is it the faithful Christian going after their fellow church member who seems to be wandering? Are they doing the saving? Because it says here, this person who's restoring the wanderer, who's bringing him back, they will save his soul from death. And by the way, can this sinner who's, if they, nobody intercepts them in their drift, they will eventually die. So does that mean that a true believer can lose their salvation? The answer to that question simply I believe, biblically, is no, but to answer that question more helpfully and biblically, we need to say more than just no. We need to say at least three things. The first is that the Bible is very clear. All those, all, every single one, not one more and not one less, that are justified, in other words, that are made right with God through the work of Jesus on the cross, and that's what it means to be a Christian, to trust by faith in what Jesus has done in his obedience and his righteousness to satisfy the wrath of God for our unrighteousness and disobedience, it means when we put our trust in what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection as our redemption, as the only means that we can be reconciled to God, the Bible says that when we put our faith in Jesus, and oh, by the way, that faith is the fruit of a new heart that God gives us, and it's a gift. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're justified, we're made right. I believe that all those, the Bible clearly teaches, all those that are justified, you could also use the word saved, you could use the word regenerated, you could use the word born again, all of those are biblical words. All those that are justified, that are born again, that are saved, will make it to heaven. Where do I get that from? Let me read to you some verses. Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So every single one of those that he predetermined, predetermined their destiny, he also called. He determined to open up their heart with the gospel. And those whom he called, he also justified. So every one of those that he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the second half of that sentence. Every single person and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's an airtight sentence. There's nobody that has the possibility of dropping off. So all those that have been made right with God at the beginning of the Christian life 
are guaranteed to go all the way to the end, which is glorification, which is heaven. So that verse, just that verse alone is enough for me, but let me give you some more. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's a certainty there that there's a people that God has given to Jesus the Son, and they will come to him. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, verse 39, is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 39, I mean, that's, I know we got some rangers in here. Verse 39 is like the original ranger creed. I will never leave a fallen comrade comrade on the, on, the, on, on the field of battle. That's it. Jesus doesn't leave any of his fellow brothers and sisters on the field of battle. That's what verse 39 is saying. I, and this is, the, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. John 10, verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they, shall, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to verse 4. To an inheritance, which I think is future, it's heaven, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So yes, faith is necessary, but it's enabled by God's power, and he's using the means of your faith to guarantee, to keep in heaven for you your imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. A couple more. First Corinthians 1. I just want to hammer this home. I want to prove it to you, especially for any of you that may be doubting your, your standing. You might be dealing with assurance issues. Paul is praying for the Corinthians, and he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift, picking up mid-sentence there in verse 7. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, not might, but who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then finally, one that I'm sure you're, many of you are familiar with, Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These verses and many others, I think clearly, clearly teach that a true born-again believer cannot lose their salvation. In fact, their salvation really isn't theirs to lose. They didn't bring it about, and they cannot lose it. Does not mean that a Christian will at not at times in their life go through very difficult trials, maybe even periods of rebellion and regression. But it does mean that all those that are truly born again, that God in eternity past has set his love, love on, will make it all the way home to glorification. That's truth number one. Truth number two, though, is however, we, can't, we have to say more than that. The second thing that we need to understand about this question about can people lose their salvation, the answer is no, is that God, although he has ordained this end that all of his people will get there, he uses means to get to that end. And that's what this text is about in James. 
God uses his people to be the means to preserve his people. The doctrine of eternal security is not, and this is how many people mistakenly view it. It's a kind of guarantee. It's like, it's like God sprinkling pixie dust over you when you come to faith in Jesus, and that's it. That's all there is to the Christian life. No, that is too quickly fast-forwarding to the end and not living out the means. And the means are clearly in our text. He says, whoever brings back the wanderer will save his soul from death. So that means that God is using the means of a faithful brother or sister to be the means by which he saves, keeps, preserves his children who at times will be prone to wander. And so he's going so far as to say that the person who does that is actually the one doing the saving. But we know that behind the means of that faithful brother or sister who's willing to have a difficult conversation with somebody that seems to be drifting, although it may seem like they're doing the saving, actually it's God in and through that faithful brother or sister bringing back that wanderer to be the means by which he preserves those who he's guaranteed to preserve. I think this is borne out in the exhortations in the New Testament. Let me give you a few. Hebrews 3, verse 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So there's a warning. And we can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. You know, I prayed a prayer 20 years ago. And so verse 12 isn't for me. No, every verse of the Bible is for all of us. In verse 12, the way God is using the means of the warning to be a means of preserving those that he's guaranteed that he will preserve. Do you see that? Don't separate the means from the end. And then, how does God warn us? Through one another. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That if there doesn't mean that it's possible that a true believer can lose their salvation. It means that from a human perspective, we don't know what type of soil one another is. And there will be people who appear to be Christians that we may even think are Christians, that we treat as Christians, and we will finally, fully, only truly know until we endure to the end. So we can't. This verse is smashing a kind of easy believism that says, I prayed a prayer when I was eight at VBS, and my eternity is secure, and now I can do whatever I want. That person hasn't lost their salvation if they veer from the Lord. They were never truly saved because they heard an imperfect, a misunderstood gospel. And here in Hebrews, corresponding with what we read in James, is just a picture of how God intends to use us to help preserve us. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. <laughs> Encourage the faint-hearted. 
help the weak. Be patient with them all. That's written to all of us, not just leaders in the church. Are you obeying that verse? Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is written to all Christians, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This means that every believer in the local church has a teaching ministry. It may not be a public formal teaching ministry where you're preaching a sermon in front of the gathered congregation or teaching a Sunday school class or a a small group, but it means that in some way we are meant to exhort. We all have a kind of teaching ministry, and this teaching ministry is to be on look for one another, to admonish one another so that we would be used to bring back or to guard or to create a culture of gracious, humble accountability where we keep one another in the faith. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, man, this is heavy-handed shepherding. I don't want to be those people. All they want to do is get into my business. If that's your first instinct, when you see this text, you, you, you have a misunderstanding of the Christian life. Listen, if we truly understand the gospel, which means we understand how wicked and vulnerable we all are, that will mitigate against any church being kind of heavy-handed or holier than thou or some sort of legalist. This passage is not advocating that we are judgmental legalists that have a kind of uh, doubt of one another. It means that we are so absorbed with the kindness of God that he would save me that I care deeply about a brother or sister and in humility, not in legalism, When I sense that somebody is drifting, I let these verses compel me, not in judgmentalism, but in grace to go after the wanderer. What does that practically look like? Ah, it's just, it's humble conversations. It's like, hey man, where you been? I haven't seen you. You know, if if you're a member of Crosspoint, it means that you know who the members are. We give out member directories. Look through that. This is a big church. It's a big room. If you sit over there, you're not necessarily going to know the people that sit over there. And, and, I, and I actually advocate you sitting in the same places because it helps me. Because when you guys do little musical chairs, it messes me up. And I'm like, oh, well, there's Matt. I see Matt over there. And when Matt doesn't sit right there, it makes me wonder where Matt is. So stay there, brother. Thank you very much. But the point you get is that we should have a kind of responsibility for one another. And the way this works out in the local church is if you know, and God will give you the Holy Spirit is active in his church. And if the Lord puts somebody on your heart that you biblically are responsible for, act on that. That's the Lord. Call, email, text. How are you? Haven't seen you. Brother, I know life's busy, but I just want to check on you. Come on, whatever. Just have these hard conversations. Pray for one another. Get to know one another. And there's a thousand ways you can do this in a church, even if it's larger. And this is not a full exposition of how to do that. But just right now, reason to be a type of person who this verse applies to. So there's three things I said we needed to say. One is that all those that are truly saved will make it to heaven. Secondly, God uses his people to preserve his people. And thirdly, we need to say this too. 
I've alluded to it, that it is possible for a person to look like a Christian for even a long while, but not ever truly be one. And these passages are meant to warn and even weed out unbelievers from the true flock of God. Friends, it's possible to be self-deceived. In fact, and I, I don't want to be like the Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace and just kind of be mad at, like kind of just have a sort of get off my lawn sort of grumpiness about me. Um, the older I get, the, yeah, you got to fight against that. Come on. It's just, the older you get, man, grumpiness sneaks up on you like a ninja in the middle of the night and just jumps on your back, doesn't it? Man, just like, just wake up, turn down the music. And while I water my lawn and shorts and socks pulled up to my knees. But I do want to say with uh, compassion, but also a, a, a kind of critique of the American church, and I alluded to it earlier, is that I think in many streams of the American church, the number one fruit produced is not more biblical Christians, but actually false assurance false converts. Churches that want to lower the bar, that want to just get people in, that want to put on a show. And these churches, I, I, I can spot them from a mile away. They put, their websites are awesome. Everybody that they have on stage looks like they just walked off of a J. Crew magazine. They're all beautiful. They, you know, they all, they all look like they just got out of a tanning bed. They all got on like hip clothes, cool designer jeans, and the websites, like smoke and lights and everything, and they talk about their gatherings, the gathering of the people of God to sing God's word and preach God's word and pray God's word and respond to God's word. They talk about it as being a worship experience, as if that's all that there is to the Christian. Just come and experience this thing. And what I think motivates and drives those cultures, those streams of American Christianity is a kind of idolatrous idol of success where many pastors want to make themselves feel good by basically being CEOs of their little false spiritual kingdoms. And what ends up happening is it just becomes a kind of self-help place where people are entertained and they are patted on the back. And this is earnest souls who are oftentimes ignorant. They've never heard a good uh, explanation of the clear teaching of the Bible and a clear teaching of the gospel. And they come in, they're, 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 they're wanting to know. They come in, that atmosphere is attractive. Everybody seems to be beautiful. There seems to be a lot of helpful things said. And there may be some helpful things said. But that type of culture, uh, it, it, it demands nothing of you. It demands no repentance. It just demands you to be there and feed the egos of the leadership. And what you get for coming on your way out oftentimes is the assurance that you're right with God merely because you enjoyed that experience. Friends, the Bible knows nothing of that type of Christianity. In fact, it's not Christianity at all. This is how the Bible puts it. 1 John 2.19, speaking of people who we think are believers but ultimately end up not being believers, says they went out from us 
But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. In other words, there will be people who think they're Christians, who we think are Christians, who ultimately prove themselves not to be Christians. I think that's the clear teaching of Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Friends, this is why, friends, do you see this? This is why this type of life, what James is calling us to in verses 19 and 20 is meaning to fight against this type of nominalism. And let me just say one more thing before, before we move on and wrap this up. This is also why I think the phrase, and let me encourage you not to use this phrase um, indiscriminately or unwisely. The phrase, once saved, always saved. I think while theologically true in the barest sense of the word, is often practically very unhelpful. Because if that phrase, once saved, always saved, is not undergirded with lots of supporting and qualifying other biblical truths like we've just talked about, it can be very unhelpful, even destructive in a person's life. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this phrase, when not carefully understood biblically, is more likely to produce false assurance in an unbeliever who at one time years ago prayed a prayer than it is to bring about true assurance in struggling genuine believers. So in short, this little phrase often paves the road to cheap grace and easy believism that does damage to faithful biblical teaching. So James is not saying a person can lose their salvation. He's saying that God uses his people to preserve his people, and it's possible for us to be deceived. And so roll up your sleeves and get serious about doing the Christian life together. Before I conclude, a pastoral word just about assurance. Because I know that there are true born-again believers in this church. This is probably one of the most common conversations I have with people in the church about they, they wonder whether or not they're truly born again. Their soul is tender. And strangely enough, the people that tend to worry about their salvation more than others I think actually have a kind of tender conscience, which is actually a sign of their humility and tenderness before the Lord. So in a strange kind of way, their wrestling with assurance is a kind of sign of their true conversion. Because people that are truly alive, but maybe are hooked up to life support because of some life situation, that they are truly alive. The dead don't realize, don't, dead people spiritually don't tend to wonder whether or not they're alive. But the tender consciences do tend to wonder. And so a pastoral word about that. Let me read you two quotes that I've read here often. William Arnaud, a British theologian in the 1800s, says, The difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one, meaning the unconverted man, takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, while the other, meaning the believer, the converted man, takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. And so if you are fighting You may be on life support, but if you are fighting, that is a sign of life. 
This is what John Owen, the, the great Puritan, said. Listen to this. If you are fighting sin, you are alive. Take heart. But if sin holds sway unopposed, you are dead no matter how lively the sin makes you feel. Take heart, embattled saint. Now, there's lots more we could say, but I think Owens is pointing us here to this idea that, yes, the Christian is going to fight sin. And some of us are going to struggle sin tremendously through many periods of our life. But keep fighting. Take God's side against your sin and know that he does not cast us out for our sin. He casts us out for unbelief. A Christian cannot, cannot lose their salvation. So fight with all the strength that God has given you. All right, let's land this plane. Three brief reflections on James. First, just about the Christian life. I've said it already. Just see, just note in this letter that the Christian life is not merely verbal confession. It is a life that follows the right biblical confession. In fact, if you could summarize James, I would... I would just point to two verses, James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then James 2.17, he says, faith without works is dead. He's not teaching salvation by works. He's teaching that a true born-again heart is going is to obey. How, just pastorally, a question, how are you doing in that? Is anything in your life does it mark? Is there fruit? Is there evidence? If anybody walked up to the tree of your life, would they say, oh, that's a Christian tree? Not necessarily by what you say when asked a theological question, but by your priorities, by the way you live your life, by the things that you do, by the things that you don't do. That's what James is about. The second reflection on James is just that this Christian life is the church life. It's just a church life. People that are truly born again, one of the first fruits of a truly born again life is that they're going to want to do life with the family of God. You're not just justified as an individual, but you are also adopted into a family. So the Christian life is a church life. We need one another. You need other Christians. And, and here's the thing. This is the, just the way church life works practically, I think, in the Bible, and also practically, faithfully in real life in our modern-day 21st century context. Church life is, let me just say this. And I, I know I'm going to get some amens on this. Church life is hard and inconvenient and awkward. I'll say it one more time. Church life is hard and inconvenient and awkward. Amen, preacher. Amen. But again, we live in a culture that is so driven by a faux beauty that people are wrongly attracted to the easy, the beautiful, and the convenient. And the churches that I put in air quotes here that can do things more beautifully, more conveniently, and in a slick sort of way tend to attract people, and that runs 180 degrees in the opposite direction of how the Bible presents the life of the Christian in community. It's hard. It's awkward. And here's what I'm 
saying is that God has ordained the hardness and the challenge and the obstacles and the inconvenience of church life to be part of the means by which he uses to sanctify and keep and preserve his people. If everything was always easy, then we wouldn't ever really grow. And when life gets hard, we would have no spiritual grit to drive through. But God in his kindness puts his people in imperfect churches led by imperfect people who aren't the best leaders, who are kind of just sputtering along trying to get the Bible right, who aren't always going to shepherd faithfully with a bunch of other Christians who aren't always going to do things right. It's going to be kind of a little sloppy. It's going to be a little bit blue collar. It's not going to be awesome. It's not going to be Instagrammable. It's going to be unfiltered. It's going to be hard. But that's the way life is. And God puts people in those type of environments. And what does it do? It builds grit. Because the world isn't a pretty, convenient, beautiful place. It's a broken place that we need to endure and bring as many along with us as we can. So I'm not saying, this is not an excuse for churches doing things poorly. We should pursue excellence in all that we do. But, but I'm just saying, don't run at the first sign of struggle or the first sign of disappointment. Consider the fact that maybe God has ordained and pre-engineered obstacles and disappointment to actually be part of the Christian life and community so that we would press through and grow and actually wean ourselves of ourselves as we have to deal with one another. Amen. Thirdly, three reflections on James, just our present circumstance. We started, James, by looking at James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Little did we know when we started that in the fall of 2019 that we would face a very difficult cultural trial, trial that we're facing now in this global pandemic, this time of spiritual isolation, social distancing. And on top of that, then we have this ethnic strife in our country and this political division. And all of these things seem to be kind of coming together in a kind of perfect storm, friends. But do we not believe that God is somehow in control of all of this? Of course he is. And he is working all things together for the good of his people. And so we have maybe more poignantly in our lives than ever before for most of us an opportunity to actually press into James 1, 2 through 4 and actually count it a joy, the trial that we are presently going through. And I think he ends this letter not by saying goodbye or saying, oh, tell him to bring me my coat. I forgot my stuff. Like these other letters in the Bible, we see Paul say, hey, bring me my coat. I forgot my books. Bring them. Say hi to this guy. James just ends it hard by saying, watch out for one another. Bring back the wanderer. Because this whole book has been about genuine faith in the context of trials. And we're in a trial. And my concern pastorally as I end is at this time of social distancing, this time when there's legitimate fears 
and understanding and, and concerns about us meeting together as the people of God, that it will lead to a kind of slow drift and wandering for many of us in this church. And I don't want that to happen to us. I have great pastoral concern that this time of social isolation, understandably so, if we are not careful, will just be a kind of slide into eventual spiritual wandering. And there's several categories of people. I think that there's those that are genuinely concerned about the virus and their own health, or maybe the health of somebody that they live with or that they care for, and so they are not gathering because of those genuine concerns, and that's totally legitimate. I understand that. And then there are, are maybe some young families who have lots of small children, and I just understand maybe you think, that's oh, just so hard. I got newborns, and I got five kids underneath the, under the age of 10, and it's just hard to gather. Their children's ministry is not able to start up, back up yet. We hope to be able to do that sooner rather than later. We don't know, and that, that's just difficult. I, I, under, I understand that. That's, it's difficult. I get it, and I hope you're catching this online. But my concern is, is that there are among us some who are frankly just allowing this to be an opportunity that slowly lets them slide into spiritual negligence and apathy and maybe even produce in them a kind of unintentional laziness and self-centeredness. You know, things just aren't like they normally are. And, you know, it just doesn't feel the same to come with church. You know, I'm not really concerned about the virus or I don't have any difficulty, but it just doesn't feel the same. So I think I'm just going to kind of check out for a while and stay at home. Maybe not even take in any spiritual content, whether online or not. It's just awkward. It's, it's not the same experience. So I think I'll just wait till things return to normal. If, if that's you, dear one, and I realize that you guys are here like, Brett, Brett, we're, we're here, we're here. I, I, I'm speaking to more than just you guys. You understand that, right? If that's you, dear one, or if that's somebody that you know in this church, this text applies to you. Go after that person. Just, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a while. Just want to check on you. I'm praying for you. Whenever, as hope as soon as possible, we can reconnect. And friends, this is not, a, this is not me saying that there's not legitimate reasons to not be in a large group. Of course there are. And many of you should stay home. I'm saying examine your heart and let's not let this trial cause us to drift rather than to press in. And it's probably more difficult than it's ever been because we have to, for legitimate reasons, maybe stay away from each other. And this means we have to be more vigilant than ever before. And verses 19 of 20 applies to this church. Let's not be people that believe the hard truths about election in grace or complementary roles of men and women or a biblical view of human sexuality and forget this regular truth, which is actually easy to confess but hard to live out. Let's not do that. Let's, let's not do that, man. Let's not do that. I love you, church. I actually think we're pretty good at this. But I just think we can always get better. Let me pray. Lord, use my words to whatever end that you deem them fit for your glory and the good of this church. If anything I said was not on point, 
let it fall to the ground. Thank you, Lord. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.